Hey everyone, before we get into today's interview, just wanted to drop a little reminder to stay up to date with all the latest episodes of On The Margin. You can subscribe to the Blockworks Macro YouTube, just go up there, just click the little uh, subscribe button, or you can click the links at the top of this episode. It'll take you over to Apple, Spotify, whatever your preferred platform is. Just subscribe there. And if you could, leave a rating interview. Really appreciate it. All right, on with the show. All right, everyone, welcome back to another edition of On The Margin. Today, I'm joined by the one and only Jim Bianco. Jim, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's going to be a good one. Really uh, rollicking FOMC that we got there. Paul just said so much, right? It's going to be tough to even digest all the all the messages. But, you know, the headline is we got the 25 basis points that was basically 100% priced in for the entire month of July. Uh, Paul said some other interesting things. But, Jim, you know, before we get into the weeds, like what was your high-level take on uh, Paul's talk? All right, rollicking FOMC meeting. I'm glad your guys woke me up so that I could make this on time. I, I think that it was probably the least informational FOMC meeting since the Fed started to raise rates. Now, that's by design. Uh, and the design is the Fed doesn't want to commit to anything. They don't want to mm. commit to not raising rates or raising rates or raising rates at the next meeting or one or two more hikes or maybe they're done or how many cuts they're going to have next year or why they're doing any of this. So it became kind of a Rorschach test. Everybody can look into this meeting and see what they want to see. But if you want to be perfectly honest, I don't think we really know much more now than what we knew right before this statement came out, except for two sentences that were kind of interesting. Yeah. The first one was the staff, if you remember, the staff was forecasting since March, since the bank blowups, the staff was forecasting a recession for later this year. Now that's off the table. The staff no longer sees a recession uh, for the rest of this year. The second thing that they said, he said that was kind of interesting is he talked about the inflation rate returning to their long run target of 2%. And he said 2025, two years. So we've got two more years of elevated inflation is what he also said. So those are kind of the only two interesting things. I might add, Wall Street surveys think that by the spring, we're going to be like nine months, we're going to be back at 2%. And the Fed said two years. But those are about the only two, those, it, those two interesting sentences, you can skip the rest. So, Jim, let's zoom in on that second bit and talk about 2% by 2025. I think what people were more interested going into this FOMC was less about the 25 bits that everyone expected to get. But I think what the Wall Street is starting to wonder now is when are, you, when are we going to get those rate cuts, right? Uh, when are we going to top out and start juicing the markets back by lowering interest rates again? I'd be curious, like, what's your sort of opinion on that at the moment? Rate cuts. Uh, I, I think Wall Street's got this backwards. The last three rate cut cycles, 2020, 2007, 8, and 2001, 2000 to 2001, the Fed only began to cut rates when they were panicking that the economy was going into recession and tried to stop it. We all probably very familiar with, you know, March 2nd of 2020 was the first rate cut. And it was pretty obvious that they were in full fled panic because of COVID. You know, 2000, late 2007 was the same way. They were in full flood panic about what was happening in the housing market. The Fed does not do victory laps in cut rates. Mm. They, they hold until everything goes bad and then they panic and cut rates. So is there going to be a rate cut in 24? 
Sure, if we have a recession, if things go bad. And that's why I like to say, what is the worst time to own risk assets like stocks? Is when the Fed's cutting rates because they're cutting rates out of panic. Now, have they ever done a victory lap and cut rates without it being trying to stave off a recession? Yes, in the 90s. In 1995, both 1994, they raised rates from 3 to 6%. Inflation never materialized. In 1995, the Fed then um, started to cut rates as part of a victory lap. In other words, not trying to stave off a recession. The S&P was up 40% a year. And in 1996, Greenspan uttered that famous phrase of his, irrational exuberance, referring to the stock market getting out of hand because the Fed was juicing it. 1998, uh, long-term capital in the Russian debt moratorium, the Fed panicked that we were going to have a financial crisis, cut rates three times over a space of about two and a half months. No recession materialized. 1999, the NASDAQ was up 85%. So is the Fed going to cut rates in 2024? If you ask the Fed, I like to use the phrase, if you ask the Fed under sodium pentothal, what had happened if you guys cut rates in, 90, in 2024 and it was not in response to an imminent recession? Oh, the, the S&P be at 5,500. We would just have a complete we would have a complete mania bubble on our hands. So no, they're not going to cut rates next year unless things go bad. How do I know things are going bad? When you're getting torn apart in your brokerage statements because stocks are falling apart. That's a good indication that things are going bad. Point is, they don't do victory laps. That is what everybody thinks they're going to do next year. But I'll push back on that and say, if you look at history, they don't do them because when they did them in the 90s, the Fed, especially under Greenspan, was not happy with what the market reaction was. Mm. Yeah, I had a in, in your most recent research report, you highlighted this tweet from Bob Elliott. He's been on the show a couple of times in the past. But, you know, there's this sort of discrepancy in between the rate cuts that are getting priced next year at the same time that there's 12 percent earnings growth, right? Mm -hmm. That's certainly not going to happen at the exact same time. Uh, and to your point about victory laps, we're not going to have a situation where earnings rates are, you know, earnings is growing into the same time that the Fed is cutting rates. They're still very concerned about the inflation situation. Yes. And as a matter of fact, what that, what Bob was trying to say with that tweet, and I was underscoring it, was if Wall Street's estimate of 12% earnings growth next year is correct. By the way, their estimate for 23, and remember we're halfway through the year, is yeah. down like three to four percent, and then a rebound of up twelve percent growth uh, next year. Uh, that means that that means the businesses are just fine. That means the economy is just fine. It, you'd be very hard pressed to make a scenario where the profits of companies is twelve percent higher than a year earlier, and we are also in recession. So what he's what he was trying to point out was they think we're going to cut rates. And the stock market is saying there's nothing wrong with the economy, that either they're going to do a victory lap, which I said I, I think they're not going to do, or one of these forecasts is wrong. And I think if there's one that's going to be wrong, it's going to be the Fed forecast. Why do I think that? Because since the Fed started raising rates, we have seen nothing but underestimates of what the Fed is going to do. I'm old enough to remember February of 2022, a month before the Fed started raising rates. And Jamie Dimon came out and said, I think the Fed could raise rates six times in 2022, six 25 basis point hikes or 150 basis points. 
whoa, you really think the Fed's going to raise rates 150 basis points? Is what everybody said. No way. They're not going to be that aggressive. Well, Diamond was wrong. They didn't raise rates six times. They raised them 20 times in 2022. And so and that has been pretty much the case for the last year and a half. Whatever you think the Fed is going to do, multiply it by three. And that's what they've ultimately done. Um, so, yes, if they're going to continue to say that the Fed's going to cut rates four times next year or five times next year, which is what the forecasts are, bet on none. I think is really, unless you think we're going to have a recession. And then, like I said, we'll know that because risk markets will be falling apart on that. Hmm. So Jim, what do you think was behind the the prediction of 2% in 2025? And just to clarify there, the Fed's preferred measure here is core PCE, right? So is this the shelter component that's lagging and that's just going to take some time to work its way through the system or try to make that prediction come alive for us a little bit? Yeah. So I think that there's two, before I make that, bring that alive, let me just preface it with the following. The Fed is data dependent and I've been very critical. I have no idea what that means because what you also need, you know, and I don't think Jay Powell knows what that means. Basically, yes. You know, he said twice in this press conference, well, we got two more CPI reports and two more um, payroll reports. Well, like I said, you held in June, we missed on payrolls. We came in late on CPI and you hiked rates. So the data didn't mean anything for this last meeting. What we need is a theory. What we need is a model of how you take this data and what you conclude from it. They don't have one right now. And I don't know uh, where that is when it comes to this Fed. So when we look at the Fed and we try to figure out you know, what it is that they're going to do and why they think that the inflation rate is going to be in, in, in 2% to 2025. Nominally, I'd say no one has any idea why he thinks that because he hasn't laid out a theory for it. Now, I could offer you some ideas. And one of the ideas that I offer, again, Warshot test, so I'm kind of falling back on my own uh, arguments a little bit. I've argued the big fancy word is this is a post-pandemic economy. What that means is, you know, all those models used in 2019 to figure out what the economy is going to do and markets are going to do. Okay, you stop using them. There's mm-hmm. a new set of models that you have to use. Economy is very different right now. The example I always give is work from home and remote work and the emptying out of central business district office buildings. That alone should tell you that the labor market is very, very different than it, than it has been. And we ain't going back. And so as we try to understand this post-pandemic economy, I've argued that means we're going to have in frictions and stickier inflation, not 10, 15% inflation, but three to 4% inflation, maybe, maybe two and a half to three, but I would probably be more in the three to 4%, not two. So what's the difference if the long run rate of inflation goes from 2% to three, just to use that number, what difference does that make? Well, the Fed would tell us that the funds rate, neutral funds rate, is half a percent above inflation. And again, as you pointed out, we're talking about cores, PCE, that's their measure. So if the long run rate is three, that means the neutral funds rate is three and a half. Okay, they're 200 basis points above that. When the yield curve normalizes out again, it should be positive 150 basis points. That's historically where it's been. That means that the 10 years is 5%, and that's neutral. What's well, at 390 right now? So interest rates are too low. So that that's why 
this argument about 2% or 3% matters. Because if I say it's 3%, what I've said is, you know, these rates we see, they're too low. They're going to keep going higher. Maybe the funds rate comes down, but you and I don't borrow at the funds rate. We borrow market rates. And those market rates, 2, 3, 5, 10, 30, those rates start to renormalize in the normal shape of the yield curve, and they go up. So we're not done with higher interest rates, especially mortgage rates. Jim, how much longer do you think, I mean, walk me through your sort of perspective on how tight financial conditions can get before something breaks. You know, what what certainly seems like it's going to be the case here is that these higher interest rates around the 5% Fed funds rate and above are going to be with us for longer than probably most of us would like. It certainly seems, right? I remember having, you know, conversations, you and I talk every couple of months or so on this program. And I feel like, you know, ultimately what we were saying a little while ago is that the Fed is going to hike until something breaks. And to your point before about the the Fed being data dependent, it is a little funny. In my last life as a consultant, I actually developed a mistrust of companies that said they were data dependent. Uh, it's not just the Fed that says this. And you know, if you think about what being data dependent means, it's you're actually looking in the rearview mirror and studying the data once it's come in and not having an opinion about what the future is going to look like, which ultimately I think is what we need this person to do. But I mean, walk me through, like, are we still in this state where you know, the Fed, despite saying they're data dependent, are looking at these forward-looking economic indicators collapsing and continuing to just hike. Should we understand here that Powell is just hiking until something breaks? Or where are we on that? Well, I think, you know, to understand where Powell is, um, we should all go back and look at the first paragraph of his prepared remarks. He says the same exact thing at every meeting. We're here to serve the American people. We understand the hardships that inflation has. If you have too high inflation, you don't have an economy. We are committed to getting our our inflation rate back to our long run inflation rate goal back to 2%. Uh, I've argued this goes back to May of last year when he was at the White House and President Biden pointed at him on the sofa in the Oval Office and said, America, that's the guy who's going to make this 8% inflation rate go away. And he's been taking that very seriously ever since. Now, I agree with him that, you know, um, one of the in the press conference, one of the questions somebody asked him is, what do you tell people that there has to be the risk of um, potential unemployment because you have to be lean on the economy hard enough to bring the inflation rate down to 2%? And then, he, of course, he dodged it with a political answer, but I'll give you the blunt answer. Yeah. Inflation impacts 100% of the population. 50 to 55% of the population, according to some studies done by YouGov and Bankrate.com, 50 to 55% of the public has less than $10,000 of savings, cannot come up with $1,000 in in an emergency, something like 20% of the economy. They don't have any savings at all. They don't own a home. They rent. If the inflation rate is high, or if it's higher than their raise that they get, they just lose. They go to the store and they buy less things every month because prices are moving faster than their paycheck. Those are the people he's focused on. That is half the economy. If 1% of the economy is displaced by higher unemployment, that's a trade-off he's willing to take. Now, he could never say it the way I said it. And if I was a public official and I said it that way, I'd be writing my resignation letter right now. But that's ultimately where I think that the that's ultimately where I think that the the, the thinking and where they're they're coming at um, with this. 
is that they need to get that inflation rate down for those people in the lower half. I've joked, you know, on social media and stuff like that, people in the upper half, you know, let's define you as you own a home, you have a portfolio, you have assets, yeah, take one for the team. If, if you know, if, if the inflation rate, if the Fed has to keep raising rates and the markets have to struggle, and I'm thinking about 2022, uh, you'll be okay. It's those other people that I think that the Fed is really focused on. And that's where I think that they have got to, you know, we have to, we have to start remembering when you listen to the way that the Fed talks, it's almost all about inflation. And if you listen to the questions, it's almost all about real growth. You know, um, one of the questions that somebody said was, well, you know, that now that the labor market has disappointed, disappointed, it was 209,000 jobs. We need somewhere between 50 and 75,000 jobs a month for population growth and net immigration. And we get and we had like the lowest number in 18 months of 209,000. That's it. Start cutting rates because we're back to 209,000. That used to be a very good number. So there's really nothing wrong with the labor market. And I think that the focus has to be on inflation. Uh, and, I, you know, as far as the Fed is concerned, you have to see some serious, serious weakness in the economy in order to get them to back off of that. What is that serious weakness also going to have? It's going to have tightening financial conditions, which is a fancy way of saying that, um, you know, when, when, what, what, what's going to happen? What's the Fed going to do when the economy goes down? Well, they're going to wait for the stock market to sell 20% and then they're going to react to it. They're not going to react to it when the stock market's within 5% of its all-time high. Uh, and so that's where I think people have to start remembering what is their focus. Joe Biden told the American public, that guy, Jay Powell, is going to make inflation go away. And since then, that's all his focus has been on, has been on inflation. Anytime he talks about real growth is only in response to a question. It's never part of his prepared testimony. Hey, everyone. We'll get back to the show in a minute, but just wanted to let you know that we've got our permissionless conference coming up. This is the one that we do with Bankless. It is the biggest and best conference in DeFi. It's going to be in Austin, Texas this year, September 11th through the 13th. If you've been in crypto for a while, you know that bear market conferences are the best conferences because those are the ones that all the alphas at. This year, we've got a phenomenal lineup of speakers and the topics that we're covering are insane. We're going to be talking about ZK Tech, roll-ups, account abstraction, MEV, app change, the whole suite of stuff. I cannot wait myself. So because you're a listener of this podcast, you're also going to get a discount. Type in pods20 and you're going to get 20% off your ticket. Click the link at the bottom of this episode and go get it now because prices go up every two weeks. You know what, Jim, it's such a good point. Just to underscore something that, you know, I think doesn't get enough airtime on. I mean, the, the consequences of this are extremely real right? There is an enormous percentage of the country that simply can't afford inflation. And there's this really painful period where in between where inflation takes off, and then ultimately, there's some corresponding wage increase, especially for, you know, I probably am guilty of coming at this from the perspective of someone who lives in New York, and, you know, works in kind of crypto and tech. And that's a very different sort of labor market and set of conditions than someone who's, let's say, a teacher or something like that. And the way the amount of uh you know flexibility that you have to to bargain for your wages is just so much lower and it takes such a long period of time for the knowledge of inflation to set in and the mechanisms that will adjust your wages to inflation to kick in that there's this like horribly painful 
you know, 12 to 18 months sort of span of time where you're just underwater. And the amount of the amount of surplus that you have to get you through just sucks. So right, you know, right. If you want to if you want to put it in some real terms, yeah. Uh, uh, something like a third to 40% of all minimum wage jobs in the United States have the same uh, job title, cashier. And that's basically what a cashier is. And so what we're basically talking about is the cashier that's sitting in front of the register the next time you go to a store. Uh, they are the ones that are living paycheck to paycheck. They are not getting 5% wage increases um, as a cost of living adjustment. And if, if in, inflation is going up 5%, which it was until about two months ago or three months ago, they just have to go with their necessities and just get less things because their paycheck is not keeping pace with inflation. And we cannot, Jay Powell does not forget that. We try to take him off that game by asking him about financial conditions and about the economy, or as one reporter started talking to him about was the Barbie movie and the Taylor Swift tickets, and that's a sign that the economy is okay. Trust me, the people that are paying $1,400 for Taylor Swift tickets are not cashiers. Uh, you know, that's a different cohort altogether uh, as well. Yeah, Taylor Swift is a major, major driving force in the economy. Didn't you see the? It was a Wall Street Journal article that yes. was playing out about this. Yes, yes. Yeah, let's let's switch over and talk a little bit about the 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 first point that you made that the Fed does not see a recession coming this year. I mean, what an amazing you know turn of face. It wasn't this didn't come out from the Fed, but I think there was a point last year where a hundred percent of the economists polled by Bloomberg were expecting not only a soft landing but a, a hard a hard landing and and recession. And essentially, if you didn't agree with that, you were, that was a heretical point of view. And the only thing that was really worth debating is, is this going to be a horrible recession or is this going to be the start of the Great Depression? So Jim, right. like, what turned around here? Well, I, I would say in fairness to some of those forecasts is, if you remember a year ago, I know it seems like a lifetime, um, we were coming off of two consecutive negative GDP quarters. First quarter, second quarter of last year were both negative. And if you remember, the debate was that's not a recession. And there were people like me saying, wait a minute, in all of American history, every time we've ever had two consecutive quarters of negative GDP, it was a recession. So now we're saying this time is different. And they all said, yes, this time is different because and to their you know, defense, that's because there were still positive payrolls. There was still positive production. There was a lot of positive numbers that you would typically look at to define a recession that didn't sink negative. Okay, that's where we were. And that's why we had people thinking, man, we, we're, we're starting this off with negative GDPs. And by the way, what was the Fed doing when we had those negative GDPs a year ago? 75 yeah. basis points, 75 basis points. They were hiking rates like mad during that. And that's why people thought that there's a 100% chance we're gonna have a recession. Now you fast forward to today, and we're like on the other side of the equation now. I don't think there's very many signs that we're having a recession out there. There are problems. There are signs of below average growth. There are definitely problems with commercial real estate. But as I mentioned, 200,000 jobs are still being created. The economy's kind of still kind of moving along. Estimates are for, you know, earnings growth to rebound next year. We'll see if those estimates are correct, but still reason to doubt them just yet. And yet all we keep saying is, but now we're going to have a recession. So I, I think we're all kind of just caught in narrative land right now. And we're not actually looking at the data. 
If you ask me, I think the recession was a year ago. I still think that was a recession, was what had happened a year ago. I know I'm an outlier on that, and I don't think we're going to have a recession now. By the way, is that good that we're not going to have a recession now? Um, because the Fed staff, the Fed staff recession forecast, by the way, was a reaction to the banking crisis in March. And they said so as much in March that they said that the tightening financial conditions led by tightening lending standards might produce a recession. That's what that was. And now they're kind of backing off of that um, a little bit. But I do think that when you look at the Fed, um, uh, when you look at the economy now, if we don't have a recession, it augurs for the idea that we have sticky three-ish percent inflation, which is like I said, think of that as 5% uh, 10-year notes and we're at 390 right now. That does not alleviate the inflation situation. It, it, it inflames it a little bit is what it does. Yeah. Jim, could you help contextualize what's been going on this year? It's been, if you just look at H1 2023, it's been pretty interesting in that you know, risk assets, the S&P, NASDAQ, basically everything is up throughout the course of the year. And this been, this has been, you know, a period of time where the Fed has continuously hiked rates, albeit with the pause that we got last month. But it seems like we're back on that hiking cycle. The terminal rate has basically been a one way, one way, uh, you know, up and to the right on the chart. Like, how do those two things go together? Yeah, um, I think that you're right that this year has been a very difficult year to basically for everybody to get their head around because we're trying to figure out what does it mean that we've had right. this gigantic 500 basis point increase in interest rates. Uh, and that's where I think we've got this belief that, oh, this has got to hurt. This is this is definitely having an impact. Um, all of these interest rate increases is definitely having an impact to residential housing. Because if you break down home the home market, existing home the volume of existing home sales has fallen off a cliff. No mm. one is trading their existing home. Why? Because they got a 3% mortgage and they don't want to trade out of that 3% mortgage and then be forced to go buy another house and get a 7% mortgage. Uh, but there are certain people that need a home. So what's been filling the gap has been new home sales or new home building. And that's why the home builder stocks have been on fire this year because no one's selling their home. So we just have to build new homes to meet that demand. Um, so definitely interest rates has had an enormous impact on residential, on residential housing. But to your point, all year, I think what we've seen is we've seen nothing but one surprise over another. I mean, to me, the biggest surprise right. of the year, I'll go a little bit tangential for you here. The biggest surprise of the year is what happened in China. If you go back to January, it was, it was the easiest trade in the history of being a global fund manager. China is reopening. They're ending zero COVID. Get out of the way. Watch their economy. Boom. Their stock market took off until about the middle of January and then stopped, reversed, and it's been nothing but pain and suffering since. Their economy has been struggling, struggling, and struggling since. And people are still saying, well, now, you know, and they've replaced their central bank governor and they've been trying right. to do things. And people say, well, the the central bank has to, you know, ease more aggressively to get the economy moving. Are you kidding me? They just sent a billion people back to work and that didn't get the economy working. But we got to cut rates another 10 basis points. That'll get things moving um, at that point. So the Chinese economy, the point there is that that economy is in, is in a world of hurt right now. We don't want to say it out loud, but it is in a world of hurt. And that could and they matter for everybody else. They're 
the global supplier for everybody else. And what happens with the Chinese economy is going to matter for us. It's both going to be deflationary because they're not going to be consuming stuff as consumers. And it could be potentially inflationary if it starts to impact their supply chain because of problems with their economy. We're almost there now. We're not quite there, but we're very, very close to it. Now, my point there is you said to try and help understand this economy. It has been very difficult. And of course, the other big story with the economy or with mm. the markets more specifically has been, you know, two letters, AI. Uh, I have a, I'll throw this at you, Mike. I, I think what's happening with AI stocks is if you're of a certain age, let's say over 45, you um, are old enough to remember when people made fun of the internet, that it wouldn't amount to anything, and you missed all of the huge gains in the 90s. If you're of another age, say 35 or so, you're of, uh, you are old enough to remember when people used to call crypto crap and it was pretend money and and people look still at do that, that Jim. Yes, I know, <laughs> I but this I don't is know back, who you're talking to. <laughs> yes, this is back. This is back when they said I can't believe people paid a hundred dollars for Bitcoin. Have uh, they lost their mind? That yeah. So what I'm saying is those cohorts laughed at the new financial or the new technological innovation and lost. So now somebody said the words AI and somebody, you know, said something to chat GPT and it gave them back something grammatically correct. And now everybody wants in on the AI stocks. Uh, and that's, uh, there. there's no doubt that there's, there's a mania going on in those stocks. Quick word about AI from my perspective. Yeah. I think it's as big and as important as the internet itself. But I also think that what markets do is they overestimate the short term. We're way out of front oh, of our skis yes. on owning NVIDIA and everything else. And we underestimate the long term as to what it means. And let me give you an example of underestimating the long term. Brian Moynihan, CEO of Bank of America. Oh, we're spending billions of dollars. We're looking at this AI thing. This is going to be great. We're going to, it's going to save us all this money and increase our profit margin. This is the biggest mistake everybody makes with the new technology, whether it's crypto or AI or the internet itself. Oh, I take my existing business model, which never ever has to change. Now I get to reduce some of my costs and increase my profit margin. No, you take your existing business model and throw it in a waste paper basket. And you start over and redesign your entire business from scratch. Ask the taxi drivers. Oh, that Uber thing, that, that's, just a, that's just a payment app. That's all that is. It's not going to amount to anything more than just a way to get paid. It, it, it's not that important. It changed your business model. The bank should know this because mobile banking has changed the deposit taking of uh, as well. So I think that's what we mean by underestimated because we're getting all excited about AI. Oh, it's going to increase profit margins. Yeah. And it's also going to put people out of business. Brian Moynihan, make the case for me that if AI achieves its promise, that Bank of America is not 200 tech employees running an app and everybody else can go. And that all the bank becomes is a gigantic app. And that everybody just goes to their phone and gets everything they need instantaneously. And we just need people to maintain the app and provide upgrades. That's what you're looking at with potentially AI. Now, that's maybe a decade plus out into the future. But if you all you think it means is just we could reduce costs and increase profit margin, you're missing the boat here on this thing. Yeah. You know, Jim, I, I just couldn't agree more. The sort of stole the words out of my mouth. I was going to refer to a, there's a podcast that I listened to. 
with, I think, uh, and Anon on Twitter, is, this guy's name is Modest Proposal. He's sort of a value investor. And he had this quote that stuck with me. It's probably a four-year-old podcast, so I might be messing it up slightly. But in the short term, the value guys are usually right. But in the long term, the technologists almost always are. So the technologists mm -hmm. tend to get it directionally right. But what they underestimate is the amount of friction. And you know the way that I would phrase that is sequencing patterns. Like it, It's not overnight that AI is going to totally transform all of this stuff. I think the thing that maybe bank CEOs or people that have incumbent sort of business interests that are getting disrupted, they sort of look at it and, you know, a business was created to solve successfully a very specific set of problems. And you had a, you developed a very particular point of view on how to solve those problems. And so you sort of see the world through that particular lens. And so listen to what these CEO, look at, look at what these CEOs say about AI. I think the unsaid thing is I'm going to get to fire 30% of my workforce and my profit margins are going to go through the roof. I think to your point, I think the more likely thing is that there will be AI-enabled AI business models that make some of these incumbent businesses much less relevant or profitable or more commoditized, essentially. But if yeah, you really wanna, if you really want to throw it at somebody to upset them, go talk to go talk to a lawyer and tell them if you combine AI with smart contracts, the legal industry is not going to look at all like it does now in 20 years. It's going to be vastly, vastly different. Contracts are going to be free. You know app. What you know what a lawyer would say to you, Jim? Well, it depends. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But I mean, you know, the things that the things that lawyers get paid for, contracts, you know, closings and re, uh, real estate, a lot of that kind of stuff, that stuff's all going to be automated and stuff. Um, the only thing that's going to be left basically is conflict resolution, like uh, litigants and stuff, litigation and stuff. But they 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 all try to get away from that because nobody wants to do that. But the the legal industry. And I think the journalism industry are going to be on the front edge of of epic, epic changes when this AI really kicks in um, mm. in, in the way that we think it is going to. Yeah, although I would make the, the slight argument that I think the sequencing effects play out in reverse here in that actually AI will create more jobs for lawyers in the interim in the same way that it did in crypto because smart contracts didn't eliminate the, job, the need for lawyers. It actually increased the need for a certain specialized type of lawyers that you know, before you know, you move over from a legacy system to a new system of how to make those two systems talk, and it creates a bunch of frictions in the short term. But I, I wanna one one thing. I just I real quick on that, and we yeah. can move on. Uh, Bob Gordon at Northwestern University has done some work on technology, and he's and I'm completely in agreement with him. Technology is a net creator of jobs. It is yeah, not agree. a. And the problem is, is that when a new technology comes, and of course the big one that everybody understands is is automated driving. It's really easy to figure out who loses their job. It's really hard to figure out now that we have automated driving that there's going to be whole new brand new business models that are going to be created and those brand new and, and you know to try and figure those out. So just last thought for you we can move on. You know, I'm holding up my iPhone um, in 2007 when uh, Steve Jobs unveiled the iPhone. Raise your hand if you thought when the iPhone 1 came out, you said, oh, that's the end of the taxi industry. You had no idea that that was going to lead to the, the app store apps, you know, and eventually something like Uber. And that's what happens with technology. It is a net creator of jobs. But when I said, you know, ask a lawyer, what I'm saying to the lawyer is what you've done to this point forward is going to be obsolete. There's going to be need for you, but you're going to have to retrain yourself in a completely different way. And the older the lawyer is, the more resistant they are to wanting to change is what the, is what happens.
That is generally how it goes. What's going on, everybody? Thank you for listening to On The Margin. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a very special offer that we have coming out of BlockWorks Research. Now, many of you will probably be familiar with our platform, but BlockWorks Research is the most blue-chip spot to get research, data, governance, models, and a whole lot more about the leading DeFi protocols in the space. I've leaned on our analysts time and time again to explain complicated concepts going on in DeFi to me like I'm five years old. They can do the same for you. If you invest in DeFi or are just interested in it, it is an absolute no-brainer. As a listener of On The Margin, and to say thank you all for listening to the show, you can use Margin 10 for a 10% discount, and that gives you access to everything, which would be weekly in-depth reports, live data, all of that good stuff. So again, that's code MARGIN10 for a 10% discount. Link is in the show notes. Sign up now. Thank you later. One, one yeah. uh, idea, Jim, just to bring it back to you know the current setup is... Um, let me throw a hypothetical out there. And it's something I've been thinking a lot about because how do you contextualize this year? Right? You had enormous withdrawal of liquidity last year, the greatest decline you know, year over year in M2 in however many years. And people were really depicting doom this year. I, I, there was a, a speech that um, uh, Druckenmiller gave, uh, it might have been a year back or so, where he describes this, you know, trying to navigate uh, the dot-com bubble. And, you know, he's, I've heard him tell this actually a couple of different times where he played it uh, in a way that was very heart-wrenching for him at the time. You know, he got in early, he sold too quick. Then when it kept going up, he basically bought the top and took an enormous bath, took a period of time off, and he came back around uh, 2001. And uh, it, the, the setup where he, when he came back from his safari or whatever he was doing in Africa was, you know, you had started to, the top had come for the market. But there was this like ripping bear market rally that was going on. And at the same time bear market rally was going on, you had earnings falling off a cliff. Oil was up, strong dollar. And everyone was bullish. Everyone said, oh, yeah, it, we're good. You know, we, we've made it through the, the worst of it. And he basically went extremely short and made it all back in one trade. And I just first of all, I just think that's a cool story. He's one of the all time greats, ice cold. But it also sort of reminds me of this setup. Like, Last year was an absolutely horrendous year for the 60-40 portfolio. There was obviously going to be, you know, I've heard you say before, we talked about this, Wall Street is a bunch of mean reverters. They kind of have a point. Things do tend to mean revert, at least in the short term. What we could be seeing right now is this face, you know, this face-ripping bear market rally, which has frankly confused everyone. And one way to neatly, you know, make all of this be relatively cohesive is that this, the first half of this year is just mean reversion from a horrendous year last year, but we're going to continue the trend down. How would you respond to that? Yes. And I would, um, I would go, you know, if you want to add another level of complexity to that, you know, the, the, the narrative on wall street is the magnificent seven, you know, um, the, the, the meta, the Apple, the Amazon, uh, the alphabet, the Microsoft, the Tesla, and the NVIDIA, those seven stocks, they're 12% of the 18% in the S and P. Seven stocks. If you know the S and P is up twelve percent for seven stocks, it is up another six percent for the other four hundred ninety-three stocks. And if you went back to June first, those four hundred ninety-three stocks and the Russell two thousand, the small cap index, were still down on the year. Um, so it was only seven stocks that was leading it up. It's broadened out a little bit since the beginning of June. I think that that's part of this idea that the Fed's going to stop raising rates and that they're going to get interest rate relief. And that's what's been causing the broadening out of the rally. So, yeah, that's where I think, you know, the, that that second level of confusion, because by some measures, 
you could argue this is the most concentrated rally we've ever seen. That yeah. seven stocks account for that big a gain in an index of 500 stocks. That's uh, that is unprecedented. Uh, that what we've seen, um, it, at least at that point. Now, now that I've said that, um, as far as the liquidity argument goes and stuff that you've brought up, that's where I think it shows up because mm. you know there's not enough liquidity for all 2,000 small cap stocks, 493 stocks to rise. There's been a mania in seven that has really just taken the entire index and has gotten people to obscure to the fact that the rest of the market had a bad year last year, had a bad first six months this year, and has been rebounding in the last two months on the idea that they're going to get interest rate relief. Now, we'll have to see whether or not they get interest rate relief. But that's where I think the liquidity story shows up. Not enough liquidity for the entire thing to rise. Unless, of course, we start to see liquidity returning to the market from this moment forward. Because that's what we saw in 22 in the first half of 23, um, mm. as far as uh, the, the way that the market has gone. So, yeah, the liquidity story has been, um, I think, a really big one uh, for uh, for us to really understand. Yeah. So just to conclude this this part about the recession, and then I want to ask you to dust off your, your crystal ball for the last half of this conversation. Um, I mean, are we in this, like, just because we all have to use this vernacular, you know, are we in this sort of Goldilocks zone here? I mean, it seems right now, like the, the, the majority sort of consensus view is that we act, the Fed, you know, despite the flack that they've gotten, they've actually sort of landed the plane. We, uh, you know, Chair Powell said that we're going to avoid this recession and maybe that doesn't mean we we go up and that the meme stocks and the crypto comes back, but maybe we've actually found our way through the muck of it. I mean, what do you think ends up happening here? Well, I think that's what everybody wants to hope has happened is that yeah. we found our way through it and that he's landed the plane. As I've suggested, I don't think the plane has been landing. Uh, I'll go as far as to say that the 3% year over year CPI number that we saw in June was the low of the year. And that year-over-year year CPI is going to start to trend higher in the second half of the year. Not big, but it's not going to get below three. It's going to maybe trend towards four first. Maybe it backs off, you know, you know, the last few months of the year or something like that. But it'll still be trending. It'll still be trending higher. We want to believe that inflation has been licked. We want to believe the Fed is going to be done, and we want to believe the Fed's going to take a victory lap and he's going to cut rates next year. And like I said, in, you know, in 95 and 98, when they cut rates and there wasn't a recession, we had booms in financial markets. But we're having a boom in AI stocks right now. And we're trying to boom everything else over the last two months on the idea that we're going to have that. It still is an open question whether or not this plane is being properly landed or if we're going to you know, have a, 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 a bumpy kind of landing or you know, to keep that metaphor, or maybe to use Torsten Slock's line, we have no landing. We just keep going is what we wind up doing. The problem with the no landing scenario is it feeds the inflation beast is, is the way you've got to look at that. Yeah. There was actually a very probing question. I, maybe you can link it in the, the show notes. I thought it was a great, uh, one of the journalists. Sometimes I have sort of mixed opinions on the, the questions that some of these journalists end up asking, but there was a very probing one, I thought, which was, you know, with the with inflation starting to moderate, albeit not at the rate that the Fed would like to see, to what um, you know, how much do you attribute what the Fed is doing in terms of monetary policy versus just conditions in the economy? I don't know if you caught that question, but I thought that was 
That was quite a good one, actually, and probably a pretty incisive, like the right question to be asking Jay Powell at this current time. Well, we know the way that Jay Powell is going to answer it. It's like asking your barber if you need a haircut. You know, it's, you know, <laughs> it's, it's he's going to answer that it's all him. And, it, yeah. and, you know, all the good stuff is him and all the bad stuff is somebody else. Uh, yeah. And uh, but that is that is a very good question is how much of what we've seen in the decline of inflation has been um, really a reversion back to something close to a pre-pandemic level of 2% inflation how much of it is that, look, you know, if I was to restate my opinion, 9% was way too high in inflation. Um, that was unsustainable. 3% might be too low and that might be unsustainable, but that doesn't mean we're going back to nine. We're just going up a, a, a little bit and that we're just on the flip side of where we were um, a year ago. But I think you're right that that is, the, that is a, a really good question. And by the way, let me, let me, let me throw a bone out at some of the reporters um, when you're asking questions near the end of the press conference, it gets really hard. You write down your question and then somebody asks it and you scratch it out and you write down another question. Then it gets asked too much, like scratch it out. And you're scrambling on your fourth or fifth iteration. And you, by the way, they don't know the list. So when Michelle Smith, the head of public relations over at the Fed says, okay, Mike, you're up. Okay, you better stand up and start babbling a question to him right now or you won't get called again. And the first four that you had have already been asked. So you're quickly trying to formulate one in your head. So, you know, you don't want to ask the same question that's already been asked. So, you know, feel for the, it's much harder to ask a question towards the end of the press conference than it is towards the beginning of the press conference. Yeah. You know, the reporters have a special place in my heart. So I, it's a, such a good point, Jim. And the, the reason I just want to underscore why I thought that was a particularly insightful question is I think it, I think it gets at the heart of, you know, this idea that, you know, you're either, you know, even in a best case scenario, you might be doing a, it's like using an ax to cut, you know, put butter on bread or like a lobotomy to cure the patient, or you're, you're, you're taking this very blunt, large tool to cure something when there might be a, another way. But even the, the worst, the worst part of that was, would be if you thought that the Fed and what they were doing with interest rates was not actually having an impact on the structural problems between supply and demand in the economy. And then, Jim, we're just getting the worst of both worlds, right? There are these there are these supply and demand problems where in this post-COVID world where the old equilibrium based on the supply chain that existed has been disrupted, that is what is causing the inflation. And then, by the way, uh, instead of helping you to invest in the new infrastructure to balance and find that equilibrium, we're just going to crush you with interest rates. I mean, that I think that's the reason I thought that was like such a, man, I, it was a probing question and really the, the right one to be asking. It is the right one to ask, and you've you've nailed it as far as how you need to basically look at it. Because if you look at some of the long-term studies done by Ibbotson and Associates, the University of Chicago, um, the long-term return in the stock market is something around nine percent. Well, look, this year we're up eighteen, but last year we were down fourteen. You know, and so but you kind of balance out all. You average a bunch of years together, and you should have about a nine percent return. That's mm what they that's what they say in the, in the in the data bears that out we're at five and a half right now on the on the funds rate we're at five and a half on three month t-bills i get two-thirds of that return with zero risk in a, in a three-month t-bill uh it, so if you're going to tell me all these rate hikes don't matter and it's all these other things and then the fed decides that well we just got to keep going Risk markets are going to have a hard time. I know people are trying to dust off that term, Tina. There is no alternative again. 
No, that was a 2019 version. That was a 2019 phrase when if you didn't like the stock market, you got nothing. You got zero interest rates. Now, if you don't like the stock market, you park it in a money market fund that owns T-bills or buy a three-month T-bill, you're getting two-thirds of the long-term return. All right. You should have been in the stock market this year. All right. Well, did you tell me I should have been out last year? Because all I'm doing is I'm still down 4% from the beginning of January or 5% from the beginning of January, where if I had held T-bills during that whole period, I'm up about 8% um, during that period. But my point is, is that if we're saying that rate high at five and a half percent don't matter and they have to go higher, the case for owning risk assets, and you could even start throwing in the idea of crypto with staking and everything else, sure. becomes harder. It becomes much harder. If I can own, if I can own a government guaranteed piece of paper that rolls over every six months and is very liquid and is giving me most of the returns that I would get by taking risk without any risk. Why would I do that? Why would I take yeah. any risk at that point? And that could really throw an upset balance to financial markets if we're saying that interest rates don't matter. Because if they don't matter and they're not impacting inflation, then the Fed's response is going to be, okay, we'll take them back to zero. We quit. No, the response is going to be, let's try six or let's try seven at that point is what they're going to say. So at the risk of leading the witness here, Jim, because what I want to talk about is the second half of this year. I'm, I'm having... Trouble justifying my steel man case for being a bull at this particular moment in time. And the reason I'm having trouble is exactly what you just said, because ultimately we're still stuck between this, this rock and a hard place of the inflation isn't where we want. And because the inflation isn't where we want and the Fed thinks that it needs to keep rates high, you have this risk-free anywhere. For, I mean, we don't know where it's going to all settle out somewhere between five and 6%. We aren't going to get this change, this shift in regime, right? Until either something breaks or we've waited till the 2% at 2025. So it's just hard for me to imagine a catalyst, right? It's hard for me, for me to imagine like liquidity spigots coming back on. And then you also have to contend with, you know, if a face ripping rally that has been the first half of this year. So I, I realize that I've led you a little bit with that, with that particular opening, but it's just hard for me to be, you know, I'm always a long-term bullish. Maybe, that, maybe that's because I'm, I'm young, but I, it's hard for me to be bullish over the next six months. Why, why is that right or, or wrong? Well, you know, I think we're all long-term optimists because of the state of our economy and the ability for our economy to bend and change and fold itself. Look, the ability to have our economy even create crypto is a bullish thing for the entire economy. Um, you know, it, it was created here. It wasn't created in other places in the world, which might be benefiting from it. So, yeah, I mean, I am a long-term bull, but you're right. If you want to focus on the next six months, I think it really comes down to where you think we are in a lot of these cycles. Do you believe, like I believe, inflation's bottoming, it's going to stay sticky? Or are you more of a disinflationist that, no, this is the next step down. The next step is down towards 2%. The Fed will acquiesce. There will be a recession. They will start to cut rates. Or do you think that the, the, the plane is going to land? It's still very, very unclear. And the reason it's unclear is part of the question you asked me earlier is explain the first half of the year. And I went off and told you about how everybody right. got the, the, the easiest trade in January. The easiest trade in January was be long China. And it wound up being a disaster trade. And throughout the entire month of January, no one said the letters AI in sequence with each other like we are mm -hmm. saying them now. And so this has been 
you know, a very, very different cycle because also we're dealing with interest rate levels that we've never dealt with. I know wealth managers that are calling up people and saying, you got to get out of cash. And people are saying, why? It's five and a half percent. It's like I said, I I got that from a wealth manager told me this. I said to my one of my customers who's sitting on millions of dollars of cash, you got to get out of cash. He says, I'm getting five and a half percent. You told me to be in stocks at the beginning of last year. I'd be minus four percent now. And that's a hard argument to come back on. Oh, now I need to get out of cash because there's going to be another 30 or 40 percent rally in the in the stock market over the next year or so. Uh, or or is it overdone? That is the problem with this. So but I think it really all comes down to what Jay Powell is focused on. What is inflation going to do? Is it going to bottom at three? Is it going to keep going down? Um, and what's the Fed's response going to be to that when we see what the inflation rate does? I think that's kind of the center of the universe right now. As I said earlier, all Jay Powell talks about is inflation. And I think he's right about that. Everybody else has some questions about everything else. But if you look at his prepared remarks, it's always, always about inflation. That's the thing that he's focused on. Yeah, I agree with that. And I would just add to that uh, unemployment as well. You know, that's the other thing that we know the Fed pays a lot of attention to. I mean, you know, a lot and of words. And it's at 3.7%. Yeah. It's really not doing anything to tell them that there's any problem. You know, as I like to joke about the problem with the labor market right now, appears to be that there is no problem with the labor market. Yeah, um, you're right. You know, this was the reason, so, you know, lots of words have been said about why, why did the Fed keep their foot on the gas for such a long period of time in 2021? Is the unemployment is the unemployment rate, you know, and now right. we're probably getting the same effect just in reverse. Right. And as a matter of fact, if the unemployment rate was to stay under four percent, uh, you know, and people say, oh, Jay, you got to stop raising rates. You got to cut. He could say, why? We got three point seven percent unemployment. Here's another hundred basis point hike is, uh, you know, call me when it gets to four point two and it's on its way to four point five. Then I'll consider stopping. I mean, maybe that's the way that they look at it. I could definitely see that. Yeah. Uh, all right, Jim, you've already been really generous with your time. If folks want to either follow you on Twitter, find out more about the work that you do at Bianco Research, what's the best way to do that? Uh, at Bianco Research on Twitter, blue check mark with lots of followers. I got plenty of scammers like you probably do. Don't get caught up with one of them. And the, by the way, that's a shout out to Elon. Please fix that. I can't fix it. You can't fix it. Uh, LinkedIn at Jim Bianco or BiancoResearch.com. Thanks. Real quick lightning round, Jim. What do you think about the X? Um. You know, I'm not that bearish on the X. I'm I I'm remember back when uh, Musically changed its name to TikTok, and they had 100 million followers, and that seemed to be the right idea because they were reorienting it. If Elon wants to make it the everything app, and he wants to include payments and dating apps and e-commerce and everything else, and besides, he's got a kid named X. He's got SpaceX. He he seems to love he that. He loves runner. X. He does. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I under I want to say I understand what he's trying to do. Whether or not he can follow through on it is a different thing. Easiest thing in the world to do is to pan that. But go back and look at TikTok. It worked for them. Yeah, I tend to agree with you. All right, Jim, this has been a lot of fun. Guys, I highly recommend that you go and check out Jim and his work. Hope to do it again soon, Jim. Thank you.